The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Right on. So we're in Acts chapter 6 today. We've been doing this series through the book of Acts since, uh, I don't know, early September. And kind of where we are right now, if I can give a quick little recap, is that this is the earliest of early days of the church. So Jesus of Nazareth has been crucified, he's resurrected, he spent about 50 days with his apostles or so, he he ends up ascending into heaven and he's taken this group of people and he said, hey, you are going to be the one that's now going to carry this message throughout the world. You're going to go throughout the world and you're going to make disciples in my name. You're going to create these new kind of kingdom environments in the church. You're going to share the gospel with one another. You're going to love one another. You're going to do all of this because you're going to be empowered by my spirit. And so it happens. God pours his spirit out in Acts chapter 2. And all of a sudden it goes from 120 people following Jesus to 3,000 people in one day following Jesus. That's complicated growth rate, right? I mean, just imagine if you go from 100 people in a service, the pastor up front says, now who wants to follow Jesus? And 3,000 people come walking forward. It's going to get complicated, isn't it? We're going to need more chairs. We're going to need more space. We're going to need to figure a lot of different things out. But that's what happened. And it just continued after that as, as word of Jesus spread, as the apostles were going, as, as different acts and wonders and amazing things were taking place there and people saw it, more and more and more people got saved. Now, it ends up on the radar of those who are opposed to the church and so there's complications that come from outside, no doubt about that. And we're going to see more and more of that moving forward, especially next week. But all the difficulties weren't always on the outside. Church, can I just say for just a minute, like, our Christian history in the last 20 to 30 years has been more in America about everything outside the church that's wrong with us and all the things that are out to get us and all the things that we have to take a stand against and all the things that we should be against and we should protest and march and all this kind of stuff. But the honest truth is the biggest threat to what we're doing is usually going to happen within the church, not so much without the church. Like those are real. There's things that happen. But let's not forget that there's things that arise within the church that are oftentimes more dangerous to what we're actually called to do and more divisive to our community than ever. And we see this in, in our day and age. Like, so think about it. At this point in Acts, the, 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 the church is all united. Like it's just one church. It's not like, man, we got saved and followed Jesus. I guess I'll go to the Presbyterian church. Cool, we'll be at the Methodist church down here. All right, Lutheran. Like there's none of that, right? It's just the church. And everyone is of one mind. Everyone is of one heart. Everyone's sharing with one another. Those divisions haven't happened yet. Disagreements over theology or whatever hasn't happened yet. And everyone is together. The vast majority of things historically that have happened in the church that have caused or resulted in the fracture of things, whether it be over theology or whatever, those things happen from within. It wasn't things that were on you know, Fox News or MSNBC. It was things between Christians within the church because we lost our sense of unity and love and compassion for one another and we got fired up about things that maybe we shouldn't get fired up about and I'm totally chasing a rabbit trail right now so I need to reel it back in. But it's true. Like the, the issues are usually inside, right? Well, this is a huge one today. Big one today, early on. Big one today. So here we are in the life of the church and how are things doing? It's booming. I mean, the church is growing, and lest you start thinking, uh, growth, because we are, and you'll know what I mean in a second, I want you to notice something. 
in verse 1 and in verse 7, notice how this passage is bookended. Look what's written on each side of this. Verse 1, in these days when the disciples were what? Say it nice and loud. Increasing. They're growing. Now let's go down to verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples what? Multiplied greatly. Business is booming, so to speak. Like they're growing. The word's going out and the church is growing. And church, can I just tell you, that's a great thing. It's a great thing. It's amazing, having been the church planter here, so we planted Heritage 11 years ago, so we went from 100 people to whatever we are now, and, and I've got to experience different seasons, plus I've been on staff before at Mega Church, so I've got to experience a lot of different size dynamics that happen in the church. And one of the things that I noticed is that as Heritage grew, there was a large portion of people that I was surprised by that were actually really against the growth of the church. It was kind of like this, no, but we got our little community and it's nice and it's, I like this. I don't want it to grow. I don't want it to change. And, and what I started to realize is that today we kind of have this sort of uh, negative view of or negative outlook on this issue of growth. Now that happens for a couple of reasons. One of which is there's, there's been many churches or religious institutions that have kind of growth idolatry. You know what I mean? Like they're just, they just want to be big. They want to be massive. They want to whether take more money in or have a bigger stage or have more podcasts or whatever the case may be. If that's your focus, that's not healthy. What's happening here is like gospel-centered growth. Like they're preaching the word of God and people are just showing up. Like they don't have slideshows. They don't have smoke machines. They don't have lasers. They don't have drums in the band. They don't have any of that stuff. No podcast. No podcast. There's no live YouTube feed. There's none of that. They're just sharing God's word. People are hearing it and they're rushing in. That's good growth. Amen, church? So we shouldn't be opposed to that. But there, are, there have been churches and other institutions as well that have like a growth idolatry, that that's the focus. The focus isn't the word, the focus is growth. So whatever we do, we want to grow. That's not good. The other reason we don't tend to trust growth is mainly just kind of due to the culture that we live in, this sort of corporate industry culture that we live in right now. So uh, in our lifetime, in many of our lifetimes, like just the way we live day to day has completely changed. Has it not? I mean... The corner store is so rare now, isn't it? Like the little mom and pop shops, even local grocery store chains, that's starting to change a little bit. Like we've gone from like the general store or the dime store or whatever it is to Kmart, to Walmart, to Amazon. And as that stuff happens, there's benefits to us, but it also makes the interpersonal dynamics of those kind of, uh, let's call them relationships, really difficult, right? So I got a new refrigerator not long ago. We had spent a couple of years with this old, old refrigerator where the ice machine was broken. And I can't even imagine. I could have probably bought two or three refrigerators for what we spent on ice because we were living for a couple of years with no ice maker. And then last year, we finally got a new refrigerator in December. One-year warranty, which means what? I'm going to have problems at one year, right? So that's what happened. I get this. uh, I don't want to name the brand and call them out. Let's just call them um, L. I'll just make one up, LG. So we'll do that. <laughs> totally made up. It's just letters. That can't mean anything, right? So, uh, so we get this refrigerator, right? And it's got an ice maker, and I'm finally enjoying ice in my drinks, and everything's fine. And then it breaks. Ice maker breaks. Okay? I got it at, we'll make up another place. Let's call it Home Depot. So I got it at Home Depot. So I call Home Depot, and I'm like, hey, ice maker broke. 
well, of course they can't fix it, right? It's got to be an LG thing now, and you better hurry because you're coming up on your one year. Oh, man, all right. So now I'm online, and I'm filling out online forms. I'm the, you can't just find a phone number. Why can't we just have a phone number, right? No, it's not that. you got to go to here and do this and this and this and this, and then I finally get a phone number after filling out a form, and it's endless stri- strings of voicemail stuff, Right? Press one for this, press two for that. If you need this, press this. And you know, the one that we're actually waiting for is always the last one on the list. So you're there for like an hour waiting for, you know, if you have rats running around in your fridge, press one. No, I don't have that. If you, you know, just working through that list, finally get to the one. If it's about an ice maker, that's one of the things. That's probably a warning, right? When one of their voicemails is, if your ice maker's broken, I may have chose poorly. But they go, so I'm like, yes, that's the one. Hit six. And then they're like, Ice maker problems are actually fairly common. We will now email you a list of PDF form of possible solutions, and they send all this stuff. Thank you. Goodbye. Hangs up. I'm like, what? What? Check my email. Ding. There's a list of all the things that I've been doing for a month trying to get the ice maker to go anyway. So now I got to start all over again and choose different paths because I'm looking for. I just want a. I just want a person. I just want one person. So we go through those things and we experience frustration and we start to feel like, see, those corporations, they're about them now. They're not about me anymore. That's what we feel, right? I mean, think about it. Does anyone actually believe that endless chain of voicemails is actually created to serve us? Right? No. It's in hopes we're going to hang up before we get to the person that they're paying $10 an hour to talk to us. That's probably what it is. I mean, that's what we think. I shouldn't judge the hearts of made-up companies like LG. But I do. I don't think that as they were sitting over there, they were like, how can we serve Jeff and his broken ice maker? I don't think that's what they were doing. I think they were going, how can we save money, not have to have people to actually have personal phone conversations with everybody that calls? And so what can we do to actually simplify that so we have less employees and we don't have to deal with people as much and that'll make our streamlined service much more profitable? I think that's probably what happened. So we see that all across the board, right? And so what happens is as things grow and as organizations grow, we have the temptation to go, that's bad because it's going to become like that. And growth means less personal. Growth means cold and corporate and difficult and and it's going to be frustrating and we won't have the little family vibe that we used to have. And so as it grows, that's bad. So we should be opposed to that. And there's genuine, there's genuine feelings about that within the church. That growth is bad. But can I, just, can I just tell you guys, listen, our job is to do what the apostles were doing. To share God's word in hopes that people come. How dare we ever plant a church and go, I hope it stays small. Like that misses the point. Now we can definitely say, I hope it maintains its roots. I hope it maintains its DNA. I hope it maintains its love for one another as it grows. But to think about what you're saying. If you pray that it stays small, you're praying no one gets saved. That's what you're actually praying. And so we don't want that. That's that consumeristic mentality that says, no, I want the mom and pop place that's going to be there for me and is going to serve my needs as opposed to many, many people getting saved. Uh, The comedian who used to be on TV, I don't know what he does nowadays, but some of you guys remember his name, John Stewart. I remember him years and years and years and years ago. Like I was in college, I think, and saw him do a stand-up thing back at North Carolina State. And he was talking about immigrants and his grandfather, who was a Russian Jewish immigrant who had immigrated to United States 
at Ellis Island, and he was talking about how his grandfather, a Russian immigrant, hated immigrants in America. And he was like, he's an immigrant, hated immigrants. And he told this story. He said, my grandfather's probably the guy who stood in line at Ellis Island among thousands, got up to the desk, they swear him in, and he says, I'm in. And they go, congratulations, sir, you're an American. And he goes, one moment. Turns around to all the people in line behind him and says, get out of my country. <laughs> but that can be our inadvertent mentality if we look at our church community and go, I don't want it to change. I don't want it to grow. I want it to stay small. It's like saying, I'm in, now don't change anything. That shouldn't be our prayer. Our prayer should be that as we grow, we can maintain the things that define Christian community no matter what the numbers are. Can I, can I just tell you, numbers do matter. God knows exactly how many people are going to be part of the kingdom of God. God has numbers. They matter. But the numbers aren't the focus God is. Amen? And so we've got to be careful about that. That is what we want. Growth is not a bad thing. But we do need to admit, growth changes everything. It does change when it grows. Many, many things change. So when Heritage started, I knew every single person in our church. I knew every single person well. Like, I knew them well. So, like, if someone got sick and ended up in the hospital, I would know quickly about that. And I, get, I would go to the hospital and visit, and I would be there for every birth, and I was there at every wedding, and I was there at every death, and I knew everybody there. But as Heritage grew, that started to change. And so new people would come in. I didn't have the history with them. And so I'd see them and don't really know them as well. And then the numbers would start to grow. And even up here, like, I mean, I see a few of you in the first few rows. The faces just blur after that, partly because I'm getting old now and can't see. But it just gets harder to see. Hi, I saw, I did see you, Kira. So, <laughs> so, uh, so it started getting more difficult. I didn't know everybody in the same way that I did. Now, keep in mind, I am a mate, like I am a people person. Like the reason I love ministry is that I love people. And so this strain started happening where I feel like I wanted to be able to do all the things that I'd always done, but now the numbers are getting bigger, and so it was a little more exhausting than it used to be. And then people started falling through the cracks. There was this one guy, man, such a servant. I've known him for so long. And he ended up, something happened. He went into the hospital. He was in the hospital for a couple of days, ended up getting out, I never even heard about it. And like a week later, he calls me up and he's like, hey man, what? I, I'm just, I just thought I'd hear from you. And I was like, I, what are you talking about? Hey, I was just in the hospital and he was telling me what had happened. And I was like devastated to know that. This is a dear friend that I love. And, and I, I was so sorry that I had missed that. And I was, I was just apologizing to him over and over and over. And he forgave me and he's a godly man. Everything's fine. But it kind of alerted to me like, uh, uh-oh. Like, things are falling through the cracks. So I, I don't know what to do about this. How are we going to do this, and how are we going to manage this? And that's the word that would come up. How do we manage this? That doesn't sound like a churchy word, does it? Manage, management, corporate, big, Amazon, boo, LG. That's manage. And so things are changing, and I'm going, what do we do? And at Heritage then, and what we're seeing in this text right here, that became a moment where there was a significant threat to what was going on in the church. Significant threat. Let's look at what's happening here in this text. It says, In these days a complaint by the Hellenists 
arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So Hebrews and Hellenists, let me explain what those are and what the difference is. A Hellenist and a Hebrew, they're both Jews. These are both Jewish people, people of the nation of Israel, but they've got some cultural background differences between the two of them, okay? Uh, Jews who were raised in the Palestinian era, or Palestinian area around Jerusalem in Israel, they were raised learning one of two languages, if not both. It was Aramaic and it was Hebrew. That would be the languages that they learned. Many people learning both. Aramaic was the common language throughout that area. That's what everybody would learn there. But there were a lot of Jewish people that weren't in Israel. This is all part of these, you go into the Old Testament stories, the persecution by the Babylonians and the Assyrians, which scattered the Jewish people all over the world. Like, not all of them came back when Jerusalem got rebuilt. Many of them ended up living in different areas all over, really, the Greco-Roman Empire at this time. And so because those Jewish people who were living outside of Palestine, there weren't Hebrew classes in Rome. You know what I mean? So they learned Greek. So the Greek people, or the, I'm sorry, the, the Hellenistic Jews were the Jewish people with Greek cultural backgrounds. They were raised outside of Jerusalem. But what would happen is uh, the Jewish people who held their faith really, really sincerely, and, and in both of these camps, do not think that they, they, one was more spiritual than the other, okay? Understand, they valued their faith so much that many of the Jewish people who were raised in the more Greek, Greco-Roman world outside, as they got older in life, all wanted to come back to Jerusalem to finish their days around the temple and with their spiritual climate that they'd been raised learning. They wanted to be back in their spiritual home, you might say. So it was very common for people who were up in age that were Jewish, Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Jews outside of Israel to actually migrate into Jerusalem to spend the last part of their days there. Usually, the women outlived the men. Uh, Same old, same old, right? So as a result, later in life, you've got this moving uh, population coming into Jerusalem that's aging Men dying off before women, so you had Hellenistic widows that were in much greater number than the Hebrew widows. Does that make sense? So they're both Jews, they both love God, they're both serious about their spiritual systems, but they have cultural differences. Now, those cultural differences, as everybody's coming in, you have to figure things out, right? So if you're a Greek-speaking Jew and you move back to Jerusalem, you do not know Aramaic, you do not know Hebrew, and you want to go to synagogue because you take your faith seriously. You show up at synagogue, what do you do? What do you do? There's no, there's no Greek being spoken. You don't understand anything that's being taught. You're not gaining anything. And keep in mind, you just move from who knows where so that you could finish your life serving and worshiping God in God's city, Jerusalem. And you can't understand a word the pastor's saying. You're like, Jeff, we don't understand what you're saying either. Then you can relate. So what ended up happening? The synagogues began opening Greek-speaking synagogues. Because you had a whole bunch of people that were there. So they are like, oh, we'll just gather together. That's it. That rabbi speaks Greek? Yeah. All right, cool. Bring him in. And so they would be a Hellenistic synagogue and there would be a Jewish synagogue. So now it's not just one person or one group of people separated by two different languages. But, but now you've got different worship centers. Now you're worshiping separate, and you're spending time separate, and you're fellowshipping with one another separate. And we all know how we are, right? Like we're human. And that separation breeds all kinds of ugliness. And so it became very prejudicial. 
I mean, you could have Hellenistic Jews on one side that look down on the Hebrew ones as like, you guys don't understand the culture of the rest of the world. You guys are stuck in your little small town, Jerusalem area. I've been to Rome. The whole rest of the world gets it. You don't, you're not as educated. You're not as, you're not reading the same books. You don't have the same liturgy. You don't have the same food preferences or whatever the case may be. And so there was this sort of looking down upon some of them. But vice versa, you could have the Hebrew Jews that looked at these others as being not as Jewish. They would say, yeah, you guys, you just stayed out there in the world. You stayed out there in these cities and you enjoyed the culture and all the things everywhere else. You should have come back home like the Jewish people were supposed to. And now look at you, you don't even understand the language. You're like half Jewish at best. And so rivalries began to develop between them. Now, in the Jewish culture, even before the church came, there's historical records of what's called the daily distribution. Because you had all these widows and people who were poor, and the Jewish faith wanted to look out for and take care of their people there. And so there's records of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, doing daily and weekly distribution. So daily distribution would be food. It would be like beans and and fruit and rice and things like that. And then on weekly distribution, it would be food as well as clothing. And so there were certain days that they knew when the distribution was to take place. But now... There could be as many as 20,000 Christians in Jerusalem already. And so these guys are now coming to one another to meet one another's needs. Now we've seen this already in the text, right? Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4. We've seen how what? The church is of one mind, of one accord. Remember the text says they don't even hold things dear to themselves. It's not, they don't even claim that they own anything. They're selling land to raise money to care for one another. There's this incredible culture where they're taking care of one another at first. But then problems start to arise. And it turns out someone along the line, and we don't know who, but someone along the line is now showing favor to the Hebrew widows and they're ignoring the Hellenistic Greek-speaking widows in the daily distribution. So this prejudice is showing up. We'll feed ours, we won't feed yours. And then a complaint rises against them. There's a battle going on between the two of them. And sooner or later, this complaint comes up to the Jewish men. Now, I, I, or excuse me, to the disciples. Now, I want you to realize what's at stake here. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Remember the great unity that is making the church look so attractive at this time that people would sell anything they have to support one another, to love one another, to care for one another. It's on the verge of fracture over cultural prejudice. That's within the church. Now next week we're going to see persecution. Stephen's going to be killed. It's going to be gnarly. But, but this is within the church. This is a significant danger. And it's a danger rooted in prejudice that has far outlasted the church. So it's a big deal, right? And then also, think about this. Do you guys remember last week we had Adam here from Church of 1122 in Jacksonville and he was speaking and he shared how the, the Jewish leaders at the time are trying to figure out what to do with the church. Should we just kill these guys? Should we get rid of these guys? They're preaching all this stuff. What do we do? And there was a guy named Gamaliel. Remember that? Jewish rabbi. What did he say? He said, men, be careful how you handle these guys because if this is of God, it will last. If this is not of God, it will surely fail. 
So here already, one chapter later, is an opportunity, not just for the community of the church to fracture, but for it to affect the church's witness to everyone else outside the church so that men like Gamaliel or others might look at the church and go, see, they're no different. They're they're just like us. This new community, this new kingdom of God where everybody loves anybody, it came to nothing because it was nothing. So clearly, look, they're already fighting over this. We've been fighting over this for 100 years, and the church is done. So this is a really crucial moment in the history of the church. Don't think for a second that Satan is not in that moment whispering in the ears of people trying to bring, you know, what is it, windmill to a tornado or something like that, like really wanting this to spin and thinking, I'm going to use their inbred division and hatred and we're going to wreck this thing right from the beginning. There's no way that Heritage in Medford, Oregon in 2019 is going to be reading this because it just won't exist. That's what's happening here. This is a big deal. So verse 2, the 12, the disciples summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Okay, the first thing I want you to note is this. Notice the priority of the disciples. They maintain their first priority. When this difficulty comes, they don't go, okay, preaching's great and the word's good. God's word's important, but right now we got bigger fish to fry. So let's put this off to the side. Guys, grab, grab some apron, grab, grab a towel to put over your arm and some service trays. We got to feed some food. They say, no, no, no. It is not right. Now, this is not like, we can't serve food. We're the preachers. That's not what they're doing, which is kind of our natural sinful uh, proclivity to go towards if someone was, like, if we were serving something and I was studying and I said, it is not right for me to serve tables, Uh, I need to preach the word of the God. There would be some of you here somewhere that would be like, is he too good for that? Like, that's not what's being said here at all. What is being said here is that these guys, the apostles, understand, hey, we have been commanded by Jesus to preach the word of God faithfully. He gave us no outs for that. So that has to happen first. And we can't do everything. So if we're going to do something, this is what we are absolutely going to do. It's not we're too good for it. It's that we have to honor God's word no matter what else happens. Really good for us to remember. Today, there's this social justice movement in a lot of places that that really um, upholds the importance of us making sure that we're taking care of the hungry and feeding the, the, or caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, taking care of the poor, which heritage is all about. Amen? But you don't do that and leave the Word of God behind. If you do, you just temporarily put a Band-Aid on a wound. What people need to know is God more than they need food. Honestly, more than they need food. What we do is we use justice as an opportunity for the two things to go hand in hand so that we can show them the kindness and mercy of God, but pointing to God so they know that that's where it came from, not sacrificing one or the other. Amen? Jesus and his ministry was one of mercy and proclamation, and you have to have both. But the disciples only have so much, much, there's only so many hours in a day. Some of you men are feeling that right now. You're like, I can't wait till my wife gets home. I haven't brushed my kid's hair in three days. Uh, We can only eat so much McDonald's. I don't know what to do. I just need help. Several of you are thinking that. Maybe not. I definitely am. All right? 
There's just so many hours in the day. And so the disciples are saying, if we can't do everything, we have to do this. So we're going to stick to preaching, to prayer, and making sure that we value God's word. But they don't kick everything else to the curb, do they? They say, we need to get organized. And organize, oh, that's another one of those LG words, organize. That can't be the case, right? But that's what they do. I want you to hear, and here's what I want you to hear, church. Think about this. Management is godly. Everybody say it with me. Management is godly. It is not worldly. It is godly to decide how to manage and organize things in order to accomplish the mission of God. That's not sinful. Now, you can do management with sinful hearts that do not accomplish God's will. That's sinful. But management or organization in and of itself is not sinful. It is godly. So when Heritage was growing and people were falling through the cracks, like this brother that I mentioned, and and we were just trying to figure out, man, how do we even do all this? And I mean, used to, I was able to put Heritage's annual budget on one piece of paper, and I mean with like giant margins, and suddenly things were growing in complexity and in number and, and the needs were growing. And now Africa, we're dealing with Africa and doing stuff with them. And, and just all this stuff started to grow and people are falling through the cracks. And so we, as a leadership, at a certain point, at many points along the line, we're like, okay, how are we going to manage this? What are we going to do? How do we organize and do this? And so as we were starting to get more and more organized, I would hear this from multiple people, godly people whom I love. Don't, if, maybe, maybe you were one of them. I don't know. They probably left. But... Don't be judged. This is just true. People would come to me and say, man, just don't become one of those churches. Like when you're getting organized, don't become one of those impersonal. Don't do that, man. You have to fight for simplicity. And I disagree. I, think, I don't think you can fight for simplicity. As the numbers grow, simplicity just goes bye-bye no matter what you want to do about it. But you can fight for godliness as you deal with the lack of simplicity, right? And so that's what we ended up having to try to do. How are we going to organize? How are we going to do some of this stuff? Because I can't do it all anymore. And I think we had one or two staff people at the time, and we are like killing ourselves at doing all this stuff. And it was really, really difficult, man. It was super hard. Now, a lot of people, that, the way that they approached that, they looked at it like, hey, Jeff, and don't you especially become one of those pastors who suddenly you're up in the tower, wherever, I don't know where towers are around here, but I, what do they call it, ivory tower? I don't think there's any ivory towers in Medford, but whatever. You're up in the tower, and you're not around the people anymore, is, is what would be said. And, and I totally agree with that, okay? A pastor is not a pastor if he's not around people, because pastors have to have people in order to pastor, Okay? So it's like, I could say I'm an NFL football player, but if I don't touch a football, never put on a uniform, never walk into a stadium and never play football, I can say it all I want, but am I a football player? No, I'm not. You can be a teacher or a professor or a motivational speaker, but you're not a pastor if you're not around people. But the pendulum swing to that is the pastor who, like I did at periods in my life, feels like it's on you to do everything for everybody. And then you're wearing yourself out. And you're probably preaching a really false gospel to people because you teach people to trust in you instead of trusting in Jesus, but that's a whole other thing. And so I would really wrestle with that, and I would hear people say, don't become one of those kind of churches, don't become one of those kind of churches. And so it would wear me out trying so hard to meet the needs of so many other people, and our staff was doing that at the exact same time. It was really difficult. 
And so as we grew and we as a leadership were trying to figure these things out and we're trying to get organized and, and all these kind of things, I ran across this quote by Tim Keller. So this is from a, a, a paper he wrote called Leadership and Church Size Dynamics. And it was really important to me, so I just wanted to share this with you. He says this, A very key and very visible part of the large size culture is the changed role of the senior pastor. As stated earlier, in a very large church, the preacher cannot be the people's pastor. And he defines that as the one guy everyone comes to, just so you know. It doesn't mean you don't like people. It's you're the guy, okay? The senior pastor must move from an emphasis on doing the work of ministry, teaching, pastoring, and ministering, to delegating this work so that he can concentrate on vision casting and general preaching. Many churches and ministers never allow this to happen. Indeed, they believe it's wrong to make such a shift. While the senior pastor must not become a CEO and stop doing traditional ministry altogether, he must not try to do pastoral care or provide oversight for the whole church at large either. That responsibility must go to others. This is undoubtedly difficult. The senior pastor will have to live with guilt feelings over it all the time. It's a burden he must be willing to bear with the help of the gospel. Otherwise, the pressures of trying to do it all will lead to burnout. The senior pastor, the staff, and ministry leaders, and who? The congregation must allow this transition to happen. So let me, let me explain what I mean here. This idea that, okay, we're a small church, we're moving to a big church, and we've always operated like this, and I knew everyone, and I was there for everything for everybody. It started to eat at me because I couldn't do it. Now I'm letting people down, but as a people pleaser and a people person, the guilt increases, and then I've got people going, don't become one of those guys. And some of the people as we grew got very upset with me. Some people left literally telling me, you're just not my best friend anymore. And I was like, I had no idea we were best friends to begin with. I didn't know that. Like we're friends and I love you, but there's a level of expectation that I just can't possibly uphold under this. And our staff was burning out. Our leaders were burning out. We didn't know what to do. And so we realized we have to figure out a way to do things differently than what we've done before. And importantly, we've got to get the congregation involved. And we've got to get more organized. And we've got to start delegating and doing things. And so this is what we went. And the tension is this. People love to look at the early church as a uh, very organic, very, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's unformal. They just got together and they just did. That's not true. They totally fought for organization. God is a God of order, not disorder. They did get organized, but they did it in God-honoring, gospel-centered ways. That's what they actually did. And so a church absolutely can be organic and an organization. The issue is not how, the issue is the heart behind what you're doing and are you actually accomplishing the mission that God gave you. And so we wrestled with this. And listen, again, organization is not ungodly. Check a look at this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It says this. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. So the word administrating there, that's what we're talking about, leading, organization. It actually, the, the literal definition is, it's the act of setting the course. And it's like nautical language. And what it means is the administrator will make sure we get where we need to go and we don't smash into an iceberg somewhere along the way. And so we as a church realizes we needed some of these people. This is godly. This is not ungodly. And this is what they did. Verse 5, what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen and they chose all of these guys. And then look, verse 6, 
Then they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid hands on them. One of the best things Heritage Christian Fellowship ever did as we were growing and trying to figure out how to handle growth is to hire godly men with the gift of administration, men like Aaron Beamish, our pastor of administration here, men like Brent Sisson, who oversees our ministries and our family ministries here, those guys have a gift of organization that I do not have. And their, their understanding of details helps us in such massive ways. Like, I, didn't, I don't have Aaron's permission to do this. I'm so sorry. But I'm going to do this anyway. Let me show you just a second. This is right now, if you walked into our offices, let me show you my desk. Let, actually, let's show Aaron's desk first. Can you show that picture of Aaron's desk? That's Aaron's desk. I want you to look at this for just a second. Look at this. There's no dust anywhere. Aaron, actually, you're slacking here. I don't know what this is right here. But look at this. Prioritize task list, things of the day. How productive were you today? Like, that's amazing. That's amazing. Want to see mine? That's my desk. That's my desk right now. That is exactly how it looks at this exact moment, except this Bible right here is laying right there. Other than that, that's my desk. And I do hope I didn't leave the heater going. But that's my desk. And so here's what would happen. I I love to preach the word. I love to preach the word. And and one of the things I hear, you guys are like the most gracious congregation. Even Adam last week, who was speaking, he was like, man, so many people came up to me and were encouraging me and thanking me for preaching this weekend. Your church is so encouraging. And I was like, I know they're amazing. But, But can I just say for just a second, if you love the preaching here, you need to understand one of the reasons that the preaching here has, let's just say, the opportunity to be good is because of, next picture, that right there. Because of that right there. Like, even in here this morning, as worship was going on, you have Mitch up here leading in worship. Mitch, who's just like me. I didn't even, I couldn't even get into Mitch's office to take a picture. Like, the door wouldn't open, all right? So, So Mitch is just like me. So here's Mitch leading in worship. Here's me looking over the notes, getting ready to come up and teach. And I look over and no joke, as soon as I saw it, I see here comes Aaron with a cart of chairs for people in the back. And here comes Brent with a cart of chairs for the people in the back. Like that's important. And those things happening allows the gospel to be proclaimed in an effective way, allows for others to be able to train people in the gospel, allows for all of those things to happen because you've got people with different gifts and different administrations all coming together and working together instead of a church looking for one person to do it all. I mean, you saw that desk. What a mess that would be. No wonder people fell through the cracks, right? There's probably animals in my office I don't even know about right now. Like That's really really important. And that should be celebrated instead of like, oh, well, thank you. Yes, it should be. Thank you guys. I'm sorry, Aaron. <laughs> I'm sorry for exposing your office, but it really made my point and I needed a, I needed a point. But anyway, but, but that's true. And here's what I want you to understand. One is not more spiritual than the other. They're vital. Because if, if, the guy who was doing the preaching also had to make sure the chairs were set up and also had to make sure the children's curriculum got printed and also had to make sure with this and this and and all the different things that were out there, nothing would get accomplished. And what would happen is division would start to set in. People in this room would start to go, 
well, what I need isn't happening here. And other people will go, well, what I need is not happening here. And backbiting can start. Or we just take the total American consumeristic approach and go, eh, that church ain't working at all. I'm just going to bail and go to a different one. Instead of maybe going, maybe God showed you a weakness in the church because you're actually part of the church and he wants you to jump in and be part of the solution to fix the weakness. Why are you sitting way back there, by the way? Like, I need you down here. (laughs) No, but that's absolutely true. And that was one of the best things Heritage ever did is as our leadership started to recognize men who had the gift of administration and we started to actually get organized, but so that the heart and mission can continue at the church. Not size idolatry, but how can we love God's people to the best of our ability? And I'll tell you, we've got men all over the place that do it. We'll get to that in just a second. But here's what I want to show you. So that happens. The guys get organized. They're like, okay, who are some men from among you? Who are godly people that you all trust that you can raise up from among you? And so they pick all these different people like Stephen and all these guys, and they lay hands on them, and they say, all right, you are commissioned to do the work of the ministry, to love on people, and we're going to pray, and we're going to preach the word, and we're going to focus. And what is it that happens? Take a look at verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and great many of the priests became obedient in the faith. Some of the people who were most opposed to the gospel became believers in the gospel as this stuff happened. As the ministry was happening to the people who were in need, as the word continued to be preached effectively and faithfully, many people were being added to the church. It's incredible. It's incredible. So Heritage fam, if you're visiting, you can take a nap or check football scores. If you're part of Heritage right now, let me encourage you something really quick. We're growing. Heritage's numbers are upticking again. It really is happening. We, we had a season of plateau that's now changing again. And like I said this morning, I expected ghost town in here. And look at this. And this is with 70 of our women at the coast. And we all know that they, they do more than us. So we're, we're, we're growing And we feel the growing pains. We feel the tension. In the kids' wing, for example, the ratio starts to change. You have less volunteers in the room and more kids. And you go, well, what do we do about that? Because even in the kids' wing, the proclamation of God's word must be protected. Right? So how do we do that? We need to raise up people from within who are willing to say, Man, I'll, I'll jump in there and help with that. I'll take some things off of some people's plates so that the word of God can be preached effectively. In the setup in here, setup, and men, listen, like, there are so few people, so few people who are the faithful servants who come in here week after week after week and make sure that the chair you're in right now is put, and I mean, they take care to put the chairs in the right place. Some of these guys, they're praying over these chairs as you come in here, that as you come in and sit down and get to rest and hear God's word, that God will bless you. But it's very few people that are doing that, and we need more. Like, we are literally feeling the growing pains already of this stuff. And so how do we do this? Now, before we go down that road, I need to do something really quickly. And I, I have two minutes and 40 seconds, so we've got to hurry. Before we do that, I think it's right to honor 
the people who are actively serving so faithfully. Because the truth is, a lot of you who are serving in areas, you're serving in so many places and you're serving so much. And even when you come in and it's not your week to serve in one of those areas, when you see weaknesses or low numbers in areas, you're jumping in over and over and over again. And these are just just top of my head scrambling this list together of people that are regular servants for the body of church. Kids team, youth team, the leadership team, worship and media team, connect ministry team, security security team, the setup team, huddle leaders, those who are hosting huddle groups, communion teams, and there's probably others. So I just want to take just a moment, and I know you hate this, but do it anyway. If you're serving in any of these areas, would you do me a favor and just stand up where you're at for just a second? If you're serving in any of those areas, thank you guys so much. Wait, 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 wait. Listen, I want you to know something right now. What you do, no matter what it is, is just as valuable to the kingdom of God as what I'm doing right now. It is of eternal significance, the things that you do. What you do matters. And I want you to know, I am so personally thankful. God is thankful. Our church, whether they know it or not, is thankful and grateful. And so many times we call you because we have holes or we have not enough numbers to do something. And we do it so many times like, man, I can't believe I got to ask him again. And you guys do it anyway. And you're amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that. That is worship to God that is worthy. It is beautiful, the sacrifice that you make. And I beg of God that you would not grow weary in well-doing. Amen, church? Thank you. Thank you. You can sit now. But now we need more. And and I want to invite those of you that are maybe on the fringe, on the fence. Maybe you served for a while and you needed a break. I, I get it to re-enter the fray with us. And let me show you why, and then we'll be done. Uh, John 13, verse 12. Can you put this up? And I want you to hear this. First of all, I need to say this part too. You look at me before you read the text, but everyone's busy right now, right? Like I'm reading a book right now called Seculosity by David Zoll. It's one of the best books I've read in a long time. Seculosity, I highly recommend it. And one of the idols that he says our culture has right now is the idol of busyness. I mean, like you talk to anybody and you say, how you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. Like I do it all the time. And about how we can find value in all these things that we're doing, which is just another form of religion, whether it's in a church or not. Like I get it. We are all busy. I am so aware of that. So before we go into this text, I just want you to realize this is the night before Jesus is about to be killed. Probably a lot of things he could do that night, right? <laughs> right? And he gathers his disciples together. And verse 12, when he had washed his feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Now, he, he gathered them together He takes his outer garment off and he takes the form of an actual slave or servant and he starts going around these men and washing their feet. Something that was like a cultural unheard of in his day, especially for a rabbi. He goes around every single guy and he washes their feet and he cares for them. And it's also, by the way, right before communion where he talked about the bread and the wine, which represents his body and his blood that he was about to spill for them. He shows them this love. He shows them this care. Even Judas, even the one who would betray him. And then he says, now, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, 
for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now leave this slide up if you guys would. So the first thing I want you to understand, Jesus, even from the beginning, said that our service to one another should be based on the gospel, should be based on the reaction of what he has first done for us. So no one here should ever serve in any way thinking, I need to do this to please God. That is not why we serve. You can't ever do enough to make yourself worthy of God's pleasure. But God loves you already so much. And God has poured into you so much. God has already moved first. So our service is in response to the love of God. And so it's worship. Like Jesus went first in every possible way. And so that's why we serve one another. It is out of response to what Jesus did for me. If our Lord could leave heaven to come here and serve us, right? So number one, it's gospel-centered. But here's the thing. I, I, I wrestle with these sometimes because I'm like, man, I know how busy people are. I don't want people to feel guilty if they're not serving. I don't want people serving out of guilt. That's not good and all this kind of stuff. But look what he says, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Like, so before I was a pastor, I was an engineer, and I hated my job. I don't have time to go down the list. Some of you guys have heard that story a million times. I hated my job. It was so incredibly stressful. Praise God I didn't have cell phones back in that day. I can't imagine what my anxiety would have been like then. I hated it. And I was under a pastor, Jim Wright, who at the time we were at Applegate. And I remember feeling like God was calling me to something and he was, he was putting ministry on my heart and I was really growing in the Lord. I was there in church. I was learning every week, but I wasn't doing anything. I was just sort of sitting there. And I went to coffee with, one day with Jim and I was like, hey, Jim, listen, man, um, I, I just feel like I should do something. And Jim's like, yeah, you totally should. Let's get you involved in children's ministry. I'm like, no, dude, not that, not that, not that. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have kids. That's only what the people with kids do, right? I don't know, not that. He was like, no, man, we'll make you a Sunday school teacher. I'd never taught a Bible study in my life. But here's the truth, though. I trusted Jim. I had a relationship with Jim. He knew me. He knew my heart. And I knew he needed help. And I said, all right, I'll try it. I'll, I'll try it because I trust you. I'll try it. Can I just tell you, church, like, doing that became the thing that got me through the week. Like literally, the stresses and the busyness and the anxiety, serving in that way became the thing that I was just like, if I wasn't doing this, I don't know what I'd even do. And I found joy that I found nowhere else in that. I found peace that I found nowhere else in that. I found all of these things that I really desperately wanted all along simply by trusting Jesus, trusting a pastor who loved me and who cared for me, and following him into the fray and doing things like that so that he could be freed up to go and do other things as well and adding to, yeah, the organization of that church at that time. And I found I was blessed because I did those things. And so... I understand busyness and I understand all that kind of stuff. And, and I could even say, like, we only need help once a month or we only need help however many times. And I would feel like, oh, it's wrong, it's wrong. But you're probably missing out on an insane amount of joy right now if you're not serving. I, I want your life to be better. And Jesus himself promises us, blessed are you if you do them. 
And here's why it's important and we're done. Because what we are called to build here and what that church at that time was Is that working? There we go. That's rude. We now need a new sound, me- sound man. If anybody would like to serve in the sound booth, we need a new one. Is that back up? There we go. Thank you, Josh. Servant, see? Thank you, Josh. But listen, what we're doing is significant. Like the idea of serving one another, it's not just so, oh, so heritage can look so polished for anyone who comes. It's because we create a culture where we're loving and serving one another that becomes really attractive to people outside the world that don't find that kind of love and care in any other place. So it's really important. Whether you're setting up chairs, whether you're setting up communion that we're about to take together, whether you're in the kids' wing serving, it's really important and nothing is insignificant. So I, I'm urging you, Heritage, enter the fight. If you go, man, I, wanna, I want brotherhood in my church. Brotherhood is born in the trenches. Growing churches, so many times people go, ah, I quit going there because I wasn't really getting to know anybody. Man, you, I, we want to fight to bring you guys in, but I, jump in, man. Brotherhood is born in the trenches. That's where some of the best friends I've ever made have been in ministry shoulder to shoulder serving Jesus alongside one another so that the gospel can spread and so that we can love one another. So I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, just try it. Maybe today you would go, all right, just like I did with Jim Wright, all right, I'm going to trust him. I'll get my feet wet. I'll give it a shot. Try Don't trust me. Trust the words of Jesus. Happy are you if you do these things. Right now, church, Mitch is going to come up here and lead us in two last songs. And what we're going to do is we're going to come to the table. This is the reminder that Jesus Christ gave us about all of these things. Jesus himself said, I did not come here to, to be served, but to serve. The king of all creation came to lay his life down for us. And so here at this table, we have the cup of wine, which represents his blood that was poured out for us. We have the bread, which represents his body that was broken on the cross for us. Why? Because in our sin and in our rebellion, we were separated from the love of God. God is holy and just and pure, and we're not. And there's no amount of religion that we could ever do to clean ourselves up enough to be in the presence of such a holy and such a good God. And so God himself sent his son Jesus in the flesh to do it for us. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect, sinless life. And when Jesus went to the cross, upon his shoulders, God put all of the wrath for all of our sin. Everything that we have done that has separated us from God. Every sin you've ever done, every sin you ever would do. Jesus Christ knew about it in advance. Went to the cross willingly for your sake. Jesus said, by the way, he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. That's not him going, nobody takes my life. That's him saying, I want you to know I did this on purpose for you. Like, I moved first because I love you. And so at this table, we're reminded that Jesus died for our sin, and we're reminded that he rose again for our forgiveness, that we can be set free if we would put our faith in Jesus. So if you are one who has put your faith in Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you would call yourself a disciple, if you want to have a meal with Jesus, we're going to invite you to come now to receive these elements, to return to your seat, or you can find a quiet nook somewhere in the room, whatever the case may be, and to just take a moment and thank God for his grace poured out on your life. But then as we sing, I want to encourage you, challenge yourself, go in light of the grace that's been poured out on me. Like, what am I doing with that? 
And how can I follow? Because this is a point I never even got to get to, but here's the truth. In our serving of others, we become like Jesus. That's part of our sanctification. So as you see what Jesus has done for you, I want you to go to the Lord and go, Lord, am I displaying that to others? And where might you lead me? And I beg of you, church, enter the fight. Enter the fray. Man, let's get shoulder to shoulder and like proclaim the gospel and love on people and create a community here that the rest of the world could never argue against when they see it. Amen? God, we just commit this time to you. I ask that your spirit would move as we sing, as we have communion together, Lord. I just pray for your grace upon us, Lord. I pray that, Lord, if there were any words shared this morning that were not reflective of your heart, Lord, may they fall to the floor and be forgotten forever. But anything that was said that is of you, may it burn within our hearts. May your spirit engage with those things with our spirit, and may you grow us to be more like you. So now, Lord, we come to your table, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, I invite you to come and have a meal with Jesus. The communion table is open. If we bow our hearts, we bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our